The Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hello, my name is Emily and I work for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of these episodes where we hear directly from family-scale farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we're highlighting the innovative ways farmers are supporting on-farm fertility and building healthy soil. For this episode, we're taking a look at all things on-farm composting, from its production to its use and related policies. We'll talk to Liz Schroeder of Spreadwing Farm in the Cape Valley about how they've incorporated compost into their vegetable and orchard production, and Dave Runston about recent changes in on-farm composting policy in California and the implications for growers. But first, let's take a trip down south to the city of Santa Ana to a small urban farm with a big vision. Hello, my name is Abel Ruiz. Uh, I am a farmer member of uh, Crece Urban Farming Cooperative. Right now we are three members in our cooperative, but our mission is to be able to support and, and advocate for food producers in our, in our area to take control of our, of our food system. And right now we manage a third of an acre urban farm in Santana, California. Our production focus is um, mixed veggies and, and fruits and mushrooms. But Crece is more than just a farm. It's an education center and a gathering space for the community. Its long-term vision is to bring food sovereignty to communities of color in the area and help create a more equitable, resilient food system. There's certain equity standards that we have established, for example, uh, 75% of our production is uh, meant for BIPOC families in, in our area. And we're now in the implementation phase of being able to create more production, but also incorporate community members from, from our own community so that they can uh, launch into careers in farming, but in a, within the context of a cooperative. Central to the Crece approach to farming is on-farm composting as a means to reduce external inputs. Since the beginning, when we, when we started in 2016, we wanted to get really specific as far as like being good at agroecological practices. And so we wanted to be able to like cycle and reduce waste from the, the green waste that came out of the farm to be able to like process it and be able to reinsert it into our farm. We also uh, collected uh, some organic waste from people's kitchens uh, that they would drop off from the neighborhood. Um, mind you that uh, we live in a very urban setting. There's no agricultural land, like rural areas, pretty much nowhere near like us. So that we do have a lot of interaction with our, our neighbors uh, and folks in our, in our community. And so we wanted to make that space available for them to drop off organic waste and for us to develop it into into compost at that time we didn't we did not work with manures which we now do and so the compost that we produce right now is probably like a lot better than at the beginning which we we still had to like buy fertilizers like the or even though they were organic uh, they did take a toll on our economic sustainability 
Abel says that the emphasis on composting has numerous benefits for the farm and the community. We wanted to process people's waste and reduce waste in our, in our neighborhood. We wanted to improve our ecological practices to become like zero waste in our farm and eventually be able to, to save money on all the spending that we were doing on fertilizers. Crece Farm is located on the site of a church. At first, the church was hesitant to allow the farm to compost. They worried it might smell and attract vermin. There is that idea that compost is stinky and unhealthy. In a way, it's kind of like a stigma. I think we've been able to show that if well-managed, composting can be just fine. Like It, it doesn't attract rodents. It, it, uh, it really adds to the reducing like the ecological footprint. The collective eventually convinced the church that the compost could be pretty odorless and clean when well-maintained. And so, yeah, I think we've been able to build that relationship and educate the folks in, in our immediate vicinity to be able to have a new appreciation for composting. started uh, experimenting with with adding uh, materials that we would normally not add. For example, coals. Uh, we would add um, horse manure. Like we have, uh, we had access to a, a ranch uh, like 20 minutes away that uh, donates their their horse manure, and so we were able to start incorporating these additional materials aside from like the waste that comes out of the farm and people's kitchens. At Crece, they utilize different composting methods, including thermophilic compost in piles, vermicomposting, and bokashi. Abel explains that at first, they use tumblers, basically compost bins that you turn with a crank. And once the church was more comfortable with the idea, they started to do heap composting. We made a big improvement by doing heap composting, but we also added new ingredients that improved our compost recipes. And around that time, like I think also we started experimenting with vermicompost. Vermicompost means composting with worms, usually red wiggler worms, or in Latin, Essenia fetida. Their excrement or castings make a stable form of compost that can be particularly rich in plant micronutrients. Right now we have like uh, just about like a space of uh, four by 20. Of, it's a raised bed that is like four by 20. And it's full of worms, and that's where we add additional organic uh, materials to feed the the worms, and we harvest uh, eventually a a lot less than than the heap compost, but it really complements the thermophilic composting. Thermophilic composting harnesses the power of heat-loving bacteria to break down the organic matter and has advantages like killing weed seeds and pathogenic bacteria when managed correctly. Crece also networks with other farms and collectives to share wisdom and resources. One of those farms is called Tierra Negra, a group based in Mexico that provides education on agroecology and permaculture design and practices rooted in indigenous knowledge, including composting. Abel says that Tierra Negra visited and taught a workshop featuring another kind of composting called Bokashi. This is well-suited to composting food scraps through fermentation. 
It uses what's called Bokashi bran, which is usually wheat or rice bran inoculated with microorganisms like lactobacillus bacteria to break down the food scraps and plant material. It's uh, fermented compost, and so uh, in that particular workshop, they did like an open-air Bokashi compost, then they left. But we, we kept taking care of that compost heap. And we when we applied it into our farm, it, it made a world of a difference. It, it, it made a lot of improvements. Uh, and we were able to see, like, it really benefited the soil. And so they also mentored us in the anaerobic Bokachi compost, which is, uh, instead of being open air, it's done in a, in a container without air. And so we've also tried that and also have gotten really good results in the farm production. And so when uh, we started doing Bokashi, in part because I think recognizing the importance of minerals, not just nutrients, I think uh, was a big learning experience for me because the crops grow faster and you can definitely tell from the leaves like how healthy they, they look. At Crece, the majority of the compost they produce is done through thermophilic composting. So let's dig in more. A healthy, nutrient-rich compost pile needs a mix of what are commonly called brown and green materials, or feedstocks. Brown materials are carbon-rich items like dry leaves and grasses, prunings, hay, straw, sawdust, and even newspaper. While green materials consist of nitrogen-rich items, things like animal manure, crop residue, food waste, coffee grounds, and yard waste like grass clippings or fresh leaves. Starting the pile and maintaining its proper carbon to nitrogen ratio is key to ensure adequate levels of microbial activity and decomposition. Most of the brown material that we use is uh, straw, and so we interchange between straw and mulch. And as far as green material, it's like waste that comes out of the farm from people's kitchen scraps, uh, grass clippings uh, from landscapers in the area. And also, occasionally, we also get like uh, quite a bit of bigger donations of, of food waste from a food bank. And so that being said, like, I think uh, we do have plenty of access to brown material, but uh, the green waste, we don't have that much access to it. And so it depends our our amount of compost that we produce. It's pretty much based on how much green waste we have access, access to. Once we have uh, quite a bit uh, piled up, uh, which is almost every week, we make a, a new layer. We do a layer of green waste. If you can imagine it, it's usually like around uh, four feet by six feet. And so when we have uh, that much of material, we make a layer and then we put uh, that, that quantity, that volume uh, of, of brown material and, and twice as much, uh, generally. We, we give like one to two ratio of, of green material to, to brown material. Compost needs to reach an adequately high temperature so that certain types of bacteria can get to work breaking down the materials. Initially, it begins to warm up in what's called the mesophilic stage, where the temperature is more moderate, between about 75 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit, usually lasting a couple of days. Then, as temperatures in the pile increase, heat-loving bacteria take over in the thermophilic stage, lasting anywhere from days to months, reaching temperatures between about 105 to 150 degrees, or even 160 degrees. Anywhere above this and the good bacteria start to die off, so it's important to keep an eye on the temperature. And usually that, that heating up and, and, and cooling 
It usually takes about three to four weeks, and then at the, when that happens, we we move it again. Um, adding adding new uh, brown material and new green waste, and uh, eventually um, we do that three or four times. And by the three or fourth time, every in in lapses of three weeks, you start seeing that uh, it's already kind of dark enough where you can leave a pile and just uh, leave it for another three to four months, usually around three months, we let it be. And uh, it heats up and it cools down all the way to 100 degrees. Allowing the compost to cool down and cure this way ensures that it decomposes well and is more stable. A win-win for both soil and crop health. From the beginning to the end, it usually takes around six months to be able to develop a compost heap. And usually you have like three or four heaps, but like what, what you'll notice is that uh, when you begin, the heaps are quite big and, and high, but eventually, like when the compost starts reducing in size as they start developing. And so uh, what we often do is that we start a, a three or four and eventually like unite all of them, especially in that last uh, phase the, when we won't move them anymore. We add everything together so that um, it creates like quite a sizable heap of compost. Like temperature, moisture should also be monitored, as it's key to help drive the decomposition process. We try to measure the, the humidity, and so if it's less than the 50%, we add uh, more water. And that, and that really helps in the, in the final moving. Uh, we do add a, quite a bit of water so that it retains like that moisture uh, enough through last, the last three months. It's a process that can require a bit of patience and time, but it pays off. It's dark, moist. It has uh, mycelium, like you can see the mycelium like developed. It's alive with a bunch of uh, critters, uh, roly-polies, snake bugs, CMPS, like in Spanish we call it, like I'm not sure what's, centipedes. Uh, yeah, and so it's, a, it's alive and you can definitely uh, see the richness. So yeah, hands down, there's no, there's no comparison. One challenge they faced is that they may not produce enough to last the entire year. Usually we go through that process of six months and when the compost is ready, it usually lasts us like three months and oftentimes we are left without compost. Abel adds that they utilize these different types of composting methods at Crece in conjunction with each other to provide well-rounded nutrients to the plants. The thermophilic uh, compost, we apply it as a, as a dressing on the rows where we grow annual crops. We do put uh, like four inches of thermophilic compost that's sifted, and we apply it as a dressing. When, when we harvest uh, the worm castings, we add uh, to every barrel of thermophilic compost, we add like 10% of vermicompost. And so we don't add too much. And so it's every like six or seven months that we harvest the, the worm castings. As far as the bocacci, because um, it does require like, for example, uh, wheat bran and molasses. We develop it with molasses, coals and trace minerals. Um, we do need to be more intentional on how we use it because uh, we do have to invest in, in, in its production. What we do is that in addition to the dressing of the thermophilic compost, where we're gonna put the, the transplant, uh, 
we make the hole there and uh, and put a handful of that type of compost and we cover it with a little bit of soil and then we put the the plantula the the transplant or the or the seed if you will um, uh, if we're planting with directly into the ground using the bokashi compost also made a noticeable difference with pests since then i don't think we i've seen like aphids in our, in our farm and uh, and the plants themselves are like super healthy and so when applying bokashi um, well, I, I, w- I was able to see like the next level of improvement in, uh, in our practice. And so, so yeah, I definitely recommend it. I, I think it also comes from this in- incorporation of additional um, materials that otherwise you don't find in your kitchen scraps or, or the garden waste or, or cheap, uh, uh, trimmings. The importance of adding coals, of adding wheat bran, of adding uh, trace minerals, I think it really, it really adds richness to the compost. You know? It's important to mention that within the spectrum of farming, uh, I, I would consider myself like an urban farmer, and the challenges that we face in the in an urban setting is not the same as in in wider open areas. And so, in the urban farming experience, as I as I've seen, is that there tends to be this uh, stigma that composting is dirty. And I think there is like an educational process that needs to happen for folks to actually uh, realize that that when well managed, like compost doesn't do any of that. It actually does the contrary, like uh, folks that that have passed through our farm um, because it's open for folks that walk by. They say like, oh, it smells earthy and, and it has a good smell. Let's head north to Spreadwing Farm. It's located in the unincorporated area of Rumsey, California, in the Cape Valley. We'll hear about the benefits they've seen with compost application and how they've navigated challenges in sourcing high-quality compost. My name's Liz Schroeder. I farm alongside uh, three other people, my husband Brent and our friends Michael and Kathy. So the four of us together farm. It's about 15 acres. Altogether, we have cows, goats, chickens, orchards, and about an acre of vegetables. I manage uh, the cows and the vegetable production. So we do year-round production of, uh, you know, all the basics, potatoes, onions, garlic, tomatoes, summer squash, winter squash, basil, uh, eggplant, peppers, melons, all that good stuff. Liz has farmed at Spreadwing for about seven seasons and has been farming and involved in food production for over 20 years. I farmed um, for quite a while in Mendocino County and uh, before that in various places in California, Washington State, and Hawaii. Liz says that on previous farms, she had to troubleshoot their use of compost. And in the past, she's also made a fair amount of compost during her time farming. I've had experiences of regular compost applications over several seasons and um, developed some significant soil imbalances. 
particularly with phosphorus and potassium excesses. So when she moved to the Cape Valley and helped start Spreadwing Farm, she was worried that she might encounter the same problems. I just felt like I wanted to be really careful. But I'm, I'm learning as I'm here, and the soils here are really, really different. Uh, we have a higher pH here, um, higher calcium levels. Liz emphasizes that local soil characteristics can sometimes make a difference when it comes to how the compost acts once it's applied to the field. So the soils here are a lot heavier, and so um, I think issues with compaction, I'm not using a lot of heavy equipment, but just the rain and the water can really just compact the soil and, and it feels like uh, the compost provides really an immediate tilth, kind of opening up of that heavy soil. And better tilth is just one benefit she's seen. So you get better water holding capacity, you know, the nutrients in the compost, uh, obviously, if they don't run into excess, are really valuable. Um, they come in a form that's very accessible to the growing plants. You can get similar benefits from like cover cropping in terms of raising organic matter levels and uh, nutrient applications. But obviously, a cover cropping requires a time in the field, whereas compost um, you can, you know, pull out one crop, apply some compost and get another crop growing. So in terms of like the availability of your ground to be producing an economic product, it's, you know, the compost is a little more efficient in that way. I'm managing right now about a five and a half acre field. Most of it is in uh, irrigated pasture. So I, uh, I have dairy and beef cows and I rotate them through irrigated pasture. And this season, I, sh I moved my garden area over so that where the garden is now was pasture last year. And then where the garden was is, is I'm seeding this fall to perennial pasture. So that's one element. So I'm rotating my garden through uh, these pastured areas. A few years ago, Liz started a new garden and decided to run a composting experiment. So I did pretty heavy compost applications on half the garden, and on the other half, I did more of a mineral application, so soil testing and applications of either calfos, um, calcium, or whatever. The soil test called for copper and, and zinc as well. I would say overall, the areas where I did heavy compost applications really did a lot better, especially the longer season crops like tomatoes that we try to keep going for many weeks. We have a really long season here. I, I start harvesting tomatoes in late May or early June, and I, I try to keep those going. And I do several plantings, and the the beds that got the compost applications really just kept going with a lot more vigor than the areas that just got more of like mineral applications. The quantity of compost is also important. While Liz explains that they had been applying a rather high amount at about 40 to 50 tons per acre, they plan to reduce their applications in the veg crops to about half. Liz says that while finding high-quality compost can be pretty challenging, it's also really important. It's pretty hard to find. So most compost producers 
that I've found in the Northern California area use green waste from uh, municipal collections. And so trash and glass can be a bit of a problem. The compost I've been sourcing seems really clean in that way. They're able to provide a um, nutrient analysis of their compost. And I think it's probably, you know, somewhat accurate. She notes that it's key to have lab results showing the physical and chemical properties of the compost. I have done a fair bit of soil testing and I have some sense of basic agronomy. And so it does help me to have some understanding of what I'm putting down in the way of phosphorus, potassium, calcium, sulfur, salt. I think it's important to have some sense of how much salt is in the compost, especially if they're using animal manures. That can be a real problem. The compost that I've been sourcing does utilize a lot of uh, chicken bedding. I think it's industrial chicken house bedding, um, which is, I think, a pretty common ingredient in compost in in Northern California. Um, So I like to order it and let it age a little bit. It it arrives uh, often, uh, the compost arrives and smells like the dump. And that's pretty disconcerting. Um, You know, I don't, I've never found any kind of large scale compost production that I have access to that produces compost that actually smells like good compost. When Liz has the compost delivered, she takes a few additional steps to improve its quality. I usually, I'll have them unload onto a tarp and then I tarp the compost so that it's not um, just drying out in the sun and it's not sitting in the rain. And then I just use it over time. So it ages anywhere from like a few weeks to six to eight months. The alternative, of course, is making her own. I have made a fair bit of compost in my lifetime. I ended up with, Several yards of cow bedding mixed, you know, mixed with hay. I had nice hay for bedding. And um, and we do have a small tractor. I don't use it in the garden, but it has a loader so I can, you know, push compost around and mix it and keep it going and everything. So I have produced compost in that way. I think there's just so many obstacles where I live right now. Um, like you said, materials just acquiring the various materials that one would need to make compost. So yeah, I really wish I could find a source of compost that was like what I've made. I, I, you know, I just cannot make the quantity. I don't have the resources and the equipment to be producing compost on the scale that I would need to, um, to feed the garden how I want to right now. Liz is still on the lookout for the perfect compost. You know, I, I do know what really high quality compost looks like and I haven't, haven't located it, unfortunately. As highlighted by Spreadwing Farm, Finding top-notch compost from a nearby source can be a hurdle to its use. And as we learned from Abel, on-farm production certainly has its benefits. But how do regulations and policy come into play when producing compost at scale? 
For more on that, let's talk to one of our own, Dave Runston, Water Policy Director right here at CAF. He provides insights into the ways compost is regulated and what it means for small farmers. As we'll hear, it gets a bit complicated. The state has identified 13 federal and state agencies that have some control over composting. And so, as with many things in California agriculture, it's highly regulated. And so, one of the things that happened was the State Water Resources Control Board created a compost general order at the request of the commercial composting industry. These rules placed unnecessary burdens on farmers and created a significant barrier to the accessibility of on-farm composting. And uh, the basic problem with it was that if you were going to use more than 10% manure in your compost pile, uh, they were going to put you in a regulatory tier that was going to require you to um, construct all kinds of infrastructure like concrete pad and a runoff pond and have a professional engineer design it all. And it was going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and would create a huge deterrent to any farmer composting on his or her farm. CAF got involved in a policy campaign in 2015 to make composting under the general order more accessible to growers. We started a campaign with a variety of other groups and people um, to try to uh, amend the compost general order. And uh, that's the problem, is that we have all these competing regulations and competing agencies with different laws that direct them to do different things. So those things still need to be aligned somehow. And so we started a campaign there with the Water Board to try to align their ag exemption with the Cal Recycles ag exemption. And uh, along the way, the Water Board decided um, to accommodate dairies and allow them to export more finished compost off the farm than the Cal Recycle Regulation did. Cal Recycle Regulation limits it to 1,000 cubic yards. That's about 500 tons per year. And the Water Board one now allows 5,000 cubic yards, or about 2,500 tons, to be exported off the farm per year. So basically, you know, if I was to say what the status is, I would say, uh, well, from the state point of view, you can go ahead and compost on your farm. Still, challenges persist in getting various regulatory agencies on the same page. Dave notes that the Air Quality Management District's stricter regulations may pose an obstacle depending on the location in California. For example, in the San Joaquin Valley. You can bring materials from off the farm, and you just have to follow these best management practices. One of the principal ones is any compost pile needs to be at least 100 feet from any water source or well. And you have to follow, you know, the compost requirements of the National Organic Program or the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act, which are the same. I mean, there's, it's just a short list and, and mostly common sense things about how to set up a compost facility on your farm. Dave says that Santa Rosa Community College runs a compost training operation on its outdoor learning laboratory called Schoen Farm. Maybe we'll have some more of that around the state where people can go and go to workshops and, you know, learn exactly how to do it. Amongst other reasons, producing compost on farm may be worth it given the price of purchased compost. As the regulatory requirements have increased on commercial composting, 
the, in, inevitably the price of compost is rising. The current price of compost, I mean, it's all over the map, but it, it depends on basically how far they have to truck it. Not only is the price rising, but as Liz Schroeder of Spreadwing Farm said, it's hard to know what you're going to get. The quality of compost that you buy varies a lot, um, and farmers always complain about the plastic in it. Sometimes it has so much plastic in it that people refuse to use it. And the state ratcheted up, essentially, the standards. But a lot of this organic stuff comes in, you know, plastic bags, right, that people put in the garbage or uh, restaurants use or whatever. And that's, that's, that's part of the problem. Organic waste is not clean and <laughs> nice looking. It's a mess. It's a bunch of plastic bags of stuff. And so that's a constant challenge. That's one reason to make your own compost, right? Because you're not going to put any plastic in it or glass or anything else. Um, You know what you're putting in it. Dave says that for farmers wanting to produce their own, there are some things to consider. The main thing is, well, if you're going to make compost, do you have sufficient feedstocks to do so? I mean, do you have a lot of stuff on your own farm? Do you know where you might get some manure if you don't have animals? Uh, You know, uh, there's just some questions about you know, whether you can get enough to to do it. One way to work around this for farmers who live in the same vicinity, Dave says, could be to have a cooperative compost operation where farmers contribute materials and share the compost that results. This would also require following regulations as to how far the compost is moved. I mean, the way we've envisioned this is trying to remove the uh, regulatory obstacles and then, you know, do a campaign to, like, tell people how to do this and, you know, set up courses like at Schoen Farm around the state to teach people how to do it. I think CCOF estimated that there were no more than 50 farms in California who were making any significant amount of compost. CCOF is California Certified Organic Farmers, a major organic certifier in the state. And when you think there's 70,000 farms, supposedly, um, it's obviously a small group. And most of those are organic farms um, that have a sufficient acreage to make it worth their while. I mean, it's kind of a calculation, like how easy it is for you to get commercial compost. Are you satisfied with the quality of the commercial compost? Um, are you close enough to the commercial compost facility that the trucking doesn't cost you an arm and a leg? You know, and so you'd have to pencil out creating your own compost, the amount of labor that's going to go in, the equipment that you need, um, whether you have the feedstocks. While the policy side of things is complex, CAF and others are working to make on-farm composting more accessible. And as we heard from Abel and Liz, when it comes to producing and using quality compost the results speak for themselves. That's about it for this episode, but let's give the last word to Abel Ruiz. I think for folks, uh, community projects out there, I think one of the challenges is um, how do we have access to this knowledge and these practices so that create spaces so that we can share these practices and learnings. And just the same as we have learned these practices, I think uh, there is a need for us to like create exchanges between practitioners so that we can like elevate our practice and knowledge and, and relationships. 
CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at caff.org slash thefarmersbeat. That's B-E-E-T, where we include links and resources. Be sure to check out Crece on Instagram at crece.coop, that's at C-R-E-C-E dot C-O-O-P, and Spreadwing Farm at Spreadwing underscore farm, and share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at C-A-F-F underscore fam farms to stay up to date on when new episodes are released. This episode was funded by a grant from the Organic Farming Research Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to advance organic agriculture through scientific research. For more information, please visit OFRF.org. Are you a farmer interested in being in a future podcast or have a question related to this one? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. That's thefarmersbeat at caff.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF, sharing farm fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.